Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which entertainer Jeremy Hardy examines the vicissitudes of modern living. This week, Jeremy Hardy will show you how to earn your place in heaven. Hello and welcome to the programme. Since last week's programme, I've received literally dozens of letters telling me I'm already through to the second stage of the Reader's Digest Lucky Draw. <laughs> but for those of you who haven't heard the programme before, what will happen is that I shall speak for roughly 30 minutes, after which our studio audience will be invited to make any comments about what I've said on their way home. <laughs> my discourse with fitting scenarios, I'm joined from the world of theatre by Stephen Frost. Hello. And Debbie Isaac. Hello. So, how to earn your place in heaven? First of all, what do we mean by heaven? Jeremy. Stephen. I think before you go any further, you should define terms. Well, term is a word or expression, or a limited period of time like a jail sentence or part of a school year. Oh, I thought it meant a measurement of heat. No, that's a therm, I think. OK, how about three across? Sandra, muddled about north, inside short trousers we hit. Before I look at the various ways in which we can try to earn our place in heaven, I need to find a definition of heaven which is acceptable both to atheists and to people who don't believe in God. Very few people now believe that heaven is actually a place in the sky. We now know that the sky isn't, as early astronomers thought, a line of blue crayon at the top of the sheet of paper. <laughs> Nor is it a reflection of the sea. It is, in fact, an illusion caused by lack of sleep. What appear to be clouds are actually electromagnetic discharges refracting off of volcanic dust particles in the Earth's lower stratosphere, causing satellite television and snow. In other words, heaven can't be somewhere in the sky because the sky isn't actually there. So what is a useful definition of heaven? Licking peanut butter off Harrison Ford. Debbie! Nipples! I was only going to say nipples. But even if heaven, paradise, Valhalla, or the happy hunting ground, as it is known by the royal family, isn't a place we can see through binoculars, perhaps it is still there, existing invisibly in another dimension. Or maybe heaven is just a lie, invented by rulers to pacify the discontented, like the Citizens' Charter. In which case, what happens to us when we die? Well, there's usually a funeral. This is when some sort of holy man gets up and says the nicest things he can think of about someone he didn't actually know. <laughs> and so we celebrate the life of Ronald. Friend, father, brother, cousin, second cousin, employee, tenant, corpse. <laughs> We shall all remember him as a man, obviously, but also as someone who was uh, thoughtful, <laughs> loving, generous. He was that, yes. Compassionate, selfless. Yes, yes. Devoted to family and friends, unceasing in his efforts to help others. Well, I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> Michael. Steadfast in his pursuit of the truth. Well, I mean, he could be a right bastard sometimes, you know. <laughs> I know, he was my best mate. Michael, be quiet. A man who always put the welfare of others before his own personal safety, regardless of the danger. Oh, come on! <laughs> well, he was a lollipop man, not a bomb disposal expert. His devotion to children. Yeah, well, he hated kids. Honest, you should have heard him, Rabbi. Father, not Rabbi. <laughs> Father? Ronnie was Jewish. Was he? Well, you should know. He was your dad. Was he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, your mum told me just before she died. They were at it for years. 
slag. She told me she was a virgin. <laughs> we all like to think that the dead have gone to heaven. Children are told that their gran has gone to live with the angels. Why do angels live at the crematorium, the children ask? <laughs> we simply can't accept that there is no positive interpretation of death. We have to think of something cheerful to say. It was a lovely service. Wasn't it nice so many people came? The flowers were beautiful. The hearse started first time. <laughs> at the wake, we all sip sweet sherry and speak of the departed. Our memories of them conflict so wildly, we begin to wonder if we've cremated the same person. <laughs> then we start to talk about their passing in such a positive way, you start to wonder why they didn't fall downstairs and break the hip years ago. <laughs> Lessen the tragedy of mortality by saying what a full life they had. But how does having a full life justify your death? I don't think people should die if they've committed murder, let alone because they've had a lot of hobbies. <laughs> All this studied cheer only makes death more ghastly. Funerals are depressing. There's no way round it. Even if we held them in the evening and then went on to a club, we all have to face the fact that the death of one more person we know seems to drag each one of us one step nearer to the grave. But to be serious for a moment, old people are usually completely philosophical about dying. They tell us not to make any fuss and just leave them round the back for the dustman. <laughs> Mind you, they'd be pissed off if we held them to it. Sometimes a person says they want their funeral not to be an occasion for sadness, but a joyous celebration of their life with music and laughter and where all their friends can think of the good times and be happy. Personally, I want people's lives torn apart. <laughs> Down in my will, the time to be embalmed and brought out when we have guests. <laughs> but the point I'm struggling towards in an albeit charming way is that death is a hard thing to face, whether it's ours or somebody else's. So many of us like to think that there's an afterlife. If you do believe that, you have to believe that human beings have souls, apart from bailiffs. Some believe that souls are reincarnated. Many people claim to have been someone else in a previous existence. But it's always a famous historical figure. They never say they were a part-time cleaner at one of the pyramids or a friend of Michelangelo's brother. You'll get the odd person who'll say they were a different species, but even then it'll be an eagle or a dolphin, never a daddy longlegs or a slug. <laughs> Spiritualists, on the other hand, believe in a spirit world and that they can communicate across the divide which separates the dead from the living. Although we haven't heard a lot from Doris Stokes lately, have we? <laughs> there have been several movies about spirits getting in touch with their loved ones, but is there any validity in them? Many of us greatly enjoyed the film Ghost, but still find it very hard to believe that Patrick Swayze gets acting work at all. <laughs> so let's put spiritualism to the test. I have here a Ouija board. Jeremy, I must warn you that you are meddling with forces more dangerous and evil than you can possibly imagine. No, it's all right. I bought a TV licence, like you said. <laughs> God. Um, nevertheless... I have here a Ouija board, and I am going to attempt to get in touch with the manufacturers because they put the wrong instructions in the box. I've got a board for contacting the spirit world and the rules of Kaplunk. But, but what is the purpose of speaking to the dead other than to tell them they've been made a High Court judge? One thing we want to know is, what's it like on the other side? Are they in heaven or are they in hell? The promise of heaven for the saved is set against the threat of hell for the sinner. Religion not only placates with the prospect of happiness in the next world, it terrorizes with the prospect that the next world may be far worse, unless you work in a bank. <laughs> How 
Hamlet tells us that it is only the fear of the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns that stops us all from taking our own lives. Mind you, he's a whinging old tart, Hamlet. <laughs> when he goes off to university and comes back all full of Sylvia Plath and Joy Division, and what's he got to complain about? I mean, all he's got to do to avenge his father's death is to kill his uncle. It's not as if he's got to sue a hospital for negligence. <laughs> is we have to listen to all this procrastination if he wants to put off what he's got to do why doesn't he go and reorganize his sock drawer and leave us to get on with our ice cream so he's ready to go through with it and when he's finally going to do it he can't because his uncle's praying and so would go to heaven unlike his dad who was murdered in his sleep before he could repent his sins so instead of killing his uncle he has a row with his mum and kills his girlfriend's dad no wonder they never have danish contestants on family fortunes <laughs> I shall be talking about the matter of repentance a little later, but for the moment, let's stay with the subject of hell and damnation. Language, Jeremy, please. <laughs> Sorry, but what is a useful definition of hell? Licking peanut butter off Andrew Lloyd Webber's... Debbie, I'm not... I'm not talking about people's nipples. I was going to say genital. Ah, oh, that's all right. Fair enough. But we established earlier that heaven is not a place in the sky, so can we extrapolate from this that hell is not a place under the ground? Or is it possible that the souls of the damned are lost and trapped forever in the bowels of the earth, like our nation's reserves of coal? In a word, probably not. No, I shouldn't think so. The most graphic depiction of the early cosmology of heaven and hell is probably contained in Milton's Paradise Lost, which places heaven in the zenith portion of infinite space, separated from chaos by walls of light, and hell in the nadir portion of chaos on the other side of earth from heaven, and linked to the universe by a bridge built by sin and death. This tells us that bugger all was spent on scientific research in the 17th century. <laughs> which in turn goes to show just how long the Tories have been in power. <laughs> As we read in Milton, hell was created for the defeated armies of Satan, a former angel who had failed to overthrow God with the help of CIA-backed Contras. <laughs> in general, earning your place in heaven is about being good. I have divided goodness into three parts. One, leading an entirely blameless life. Two, doing so many good things that the bad things are dwarfed by comparison. And three, doing exactly what you like all through your life, but repenting just in time. <laughs> Let's take our first method, leading an entirely blameless life. According to Christian teaching, it is hard to lead a blameless life because we start with a disadvantage, original sin. Babies are born bad, which is why they scream all night and don't use lavatories. <laughs> Baptism cleanses away this original sin with holy water, although baby wipes are more effective. <laughs> Some Catholics believe that the unbaptized cannot go to heaven and instead go to somewhere called Limbo, which is not the beach party it sounds, but a region between heaven and hell where souls hover in a state of nothingness, listening to Melody FM all day. <laughs> there are other Christians who think that even if they were baptized as babies, they should do it again when they grow up. They think the first time didn't count, because when they were babies, they didn't agree to being baptised and had no idea what was going on. But at least they had that excuse then. It's pretty stupid behaviour for an adult. If you want to be wrapped in a sheet and have your hair washed by a stranger, go to a unisex salon. <laughs> Besides, half the point of baptism is it's a way of having a naming ceremony which isn't as violent as smashing a bottle of champagne over a baby's head. And if you've been named as a baby, you don't need to be named again, do you? Not unless you've become a peer of the realm, in which case you deserve to have a bottle of champagne smashed over you. <laughs> but the idea that we are all born bad is fairly depressing and permeates much conservative thinking. Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan is one of the major philosophical treatises on the role of government. I haven't read it, but it's probably crap, so we don't need to bother about it. 
On the other hand, William Golding's Lord of the Flies is rather good, but also has a very pessimistic view of human nature. A group of boys marooned on an island with no adults and no Sonic the Hedgehog get so <laughs> bored and so fractious they form a right-wing paramilitary scout troop and persecute the fat asthmatic kid until he falls off a cliff and dies. <laughs> Whereas, if they had had, for example, a teacher with them, he would have channeled their young energies into vigorous educational exploration. He would have organised a field trip, got them lost in a fog, and they would have had to cling to a rock face suffering from exposure until the fat asthmatic kid dropped off the cliff of his own accord. <laughs> but the point that Golding is making is that the beast in all of us is just below the surface, and that when normal social constraints are removed, humans revert to being ruthless, primal hunters. You may agree with this if you've ever seen pensioners in a jumble sale. <laughs> On the other hand, a socialist view would be that our economic system forces individuals to put their needs before everyone else's and be ruthlessly competitive. You may also agree with this view if you've ever seen pensioners in a jumble sale. In contrast to both left and right-wing views, an anarchist analysis of jumble sales would be that it's hard to get near the trestle tables when you've got a dog on a piece of string. <laughs> but whether or not we're born sinful, can we go on to lead a blameless life after that? I'm glad you asked me that, Jeremy. I wasn't asking you, Steve. Good, because I don't know the answer. <laughs> there are basically seven deadly sins. Pride, gluttony, envy, covetousness, sloth, flatulence and armed robbery. <laughs> but before something can become a sin, someone has to do it. There's no point prohibiting something if no one's likely to do it anyway. That's why there's nothing in the commandments about coveting your neighbour's CD of that bloke who's in Lovejoy singing. But what was the original sin? Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and she liked the fruit and so tempted Adam to eat of it, even though God had warned them that to touch the tree would mean death, because scrumping was taken very seriously in those days. <laughs> According to Genesis, by which I mean the first book of the Old Testament, not the dreadful 70s rock group which Peter Gabriel did well to leave, <laughs> Once Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree, they had the knowledge of good and evil. This made them realise for the first time that they were naked and so cover themselves with fig leaves. God doesn't actually kill them because they're the only two people he knows. But he does banish them from the Garden of Eden, which is a bind because Adam's just put a row of tomatoes in. <laughs> According to God, they must be banished lest they eat of the tree of life and become immortal. Although, having said that, Adam does go on to live for 930 years, which is pretty bloody immortal in my book. <laughs> However, let's listen to this dramatic reconstruction of the temptation of Adam and Eve by the serpent. Eve! Look at me, a talking snake. <laughs> Eve! Hath not the Lord said... Hath? What do you mean, hath? Don't take the pith. Not my fault I'm a serpent. <laughs> All right, go on. Hath not the Lord said, you may eat of every tree in the garden? All except that one. He says, if we eat of it, we shall surely die. Something to do with pesticides, I should think. Yeah, but he's only saying that because if you eat of it, you will have the knowledge of good and evil and become gods. You've been watching too many cartoons on Saturday morning TV. No, straight up. You mean God lied to us? Yeah. Bastard! Give me some of that fruit. Mmm, mmm, that's lovely, that is. Oi, Ad, have some of this. Look at me, a talking rib. <laughs> Shut up and try some of this. Here, I can see your bollocks. 
<laughs> what bollocks? Eat, go on. God said we mustn't. So, what's he going to do? Leave one of his notes? Will whoever it is who's been eating my forbidden fruit please buy their own? All right. Mm, that's lovely. Here, we haven't got any knickers on. Forget me. Isn't that forbidden? Not until the bit of it is at this point that their nakedness starts to make them self-conscious and they put the fig leaves on. You might wonder what the knowledge of good and evil has to do with getting hung up about nudity. Adam and Eve are only a few days old. Most of us don't start to become truly appalled by our naked bodies until we're over 30. <laughs> but how might this whole ghastly situation have been avoided? Let's listen to the same situation again, this time with Eve resisting temptation. Eve! Thanks, but no thanks, Serpent. I like forbidden fruit, but I'm afraid it doesn't like me. Oh, bye then. Goodbye. <laughs> so there we are. How to resist temptation without causing social embarrassment or bad feeling. But it may not only be desire we have to watch out for. We sometimes do rash things because we've lost our temper. We can find ourselves so wound up, we just want to punch someone's face in. But we have to get a grip on our emotions, calm down and remind ourselves that he's only a children's TV presenter and apparently he's very good in Joseph. <laughs> but it's not only hurting other people we have to worry about. Nowadays, many of us try to live our lives doing as little harm as possible to the environment. There are many green consumer goods on the supermarket shelves. I myself buy only biodegradable bin liners, the kind that break down naturally as you carry the rubbish down the stairs. <laughs> Instead of my old CFC-filled aerosol deodorant, I use an organic, natural herbal roll-on made from coriander, which doubles as a delicious salad dressing. <laughs> Indeed, some people say they don't need to use deodorant at all, although you can usually tell that about them before they tell you. <laughs> You might also want to make sure that your makeup hasn't been tested on animals. After all, no one wants a lipstick with a load of dog ears all over it. <laughs> People also think much more about what they eat. Many now opt for free-range chickens, which have been corn-fed and humanely strangled by vegetarians. <laughs> so there we are. Just a few ideas of things you can do to lead a blameless life. I shall now move on to method two and discuss ways of doing so much good that all the bad things are dwarfed by comparison. So, how do we set about a life of philanthropy? Well, you can start by being good to yourself. Unfortunately, that won't help anyone else much. But it's really only by learning to love yourself that you can become truly smug. Indeed, <laughs> many people who dedicate their lives to helping others are extremely smug. But more about that later. If you want to do something to help others, why not start right in your own neighbourhood? Pop in on some senior citizens and see if there's anything they need. You might not be able to give them a new hip or an income they can live on, but you can probably pick them up some fish fingers from the corner shop. <laughs> but you may find you can help others and not even have to go out of your way to do it. Too often we close our eyes to what's going on all around us. Only the other day I witnessed an incident where people just walked on by while someone was being savagely attacked in broad daylight in a busy shopping street just because he'd asked his mother for an ice cream. <laughs> and how often does a motorist think, drive on, best not get involved, when a pedestrian steps onto the crossing in front of them? <laughs> There's so much we can all do in small ways to help other people. In the last few years, however, charity has become something very big. Let's listen to an excerpt from one of the most high-profile fundraising events in the TV calendar. Welcome back to Charity 
Telly 93. Keep those telephone pledges coming in. We've got someone who used to be in Emmerdale manning the phone lines. Later on, we've got a weatherman doing something unlikely and a panther with some backbench MPs in it. But before that, over to Mike. Where are you, Mike? Hi, yeah. I'm in Carlisle in Cumbria. Handed a very generous donation from the National West Midland Bank, who's presented us with a very large cheque. It's not for much money, but it's a very large cheque. Thanks, Mike. And I want to say a big hello to everyone at the National and Commercial Building Society. They haven't given us any money at all, but as for a mention anyway, so many thanks to them. Now, back to Mike. Where are you now, Mike? I'm in Stockport in Greater Manchester! And with me is a local disc jockey who's going to shave his moustache off and give all the clippings to Charitelli 93. Mike, I'm going to have to catch up with you later on because joining us from Westminster is the Health Secretary, Virginia Bottomley, to say a couple of words. Vote Conservative. <laughs> Virginia, you look absolutely lovely. Thanks for joining us. Uh, in a moment, it's back to Stockport in Greater Manchester to meet our totally mad local disc jockey. But first, a word about some more people who are totally mad, the mentally ill. Last year, I introduced you to Agnes. At that time, she was sleeping rough, drinking heavily, and receiving no medication at all. But this year, thanks to your generosity, we've been able to give Agnes a sandwich. Now back to Mike. Where are you now, Mike? I'm in South Shields in Tyne and Weir! Thanks, Mike. In a moment, we'll be hearing from the winners of our Find a Theme song for Charitelli 93 competition. The children of St. Kylie's School, Grimsby on Humberside, with their entry, Children of the World, sing a new song to make a new tomorrow for you and me. But now, I want you to meet a very special person, John. Now, what's wrong with you, John? I'm paraplegic. That's absolutely marvellous. Now, John is one of the people who will be helped by the money you pledged tonight to Charitelli 93, provided he can answer these three questions. Now, John, you've You've already got the crutches. Those are yours to take home with you tonight. But if you answer these questions correctly, you could be going home in our star prize, the electric wheelchair. Actually, I'm here to protest about the way your programme degrades people with special needs. Right, get him, boys. <laughs> Some celebrities have reputations built almost entirely on their tireless efforts in support of charities. But as long as they're doing it, does it matter what their motives are? If they raise millions of pounds, is it right to judge them for being odious, self-publicising reptiles who would rather see human beings reduced to the status of abject beggars than given their full rights in a decent society where their needs are met by the public purse and charity is consigned to the history books? If a celeb wants to help those less fortunate than themselves, who are we to say, you're a multimillionaire, everyone's less fortunate than you, you bastard? <laughs> If someone wouldn't even have a career if they weren't able to go on telly and bleat on about how much they do for charity, what right do we have to tell them that they wouldn't even have a career if they didn't go on television and bleat on about how much they do for charity? <laughs> Ultimately, history will be their judge. Or be on a panel of judges along with geography and French. <laughs> but these questions do raise doubts about our performing individual acts of benevolence. What's the point in giving to charity if the government responds by spending less money on welfare and overseas aid? On the other hand, if we boycott charity, what's the betting they won't cut welfare and overseas aid anyway? It would be fascinating to get inside the head of a Tory minister, and there'd be so much room to stretch out. <laughs> but what's the answer? Well, Jeremy, a moral dilemma is like a crossword puzzle. Is it? Is it what? Like a crossword puzzle. No, thanks, I've already got one. <laughs> 
I had to break the tension there, Jesse. You know, I hope you don't mind. It was a good no, joke that's then. great, Steve. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's a good joke, eh? I read it in Sir Poison. What's Sir Poison? Oh, cheers. I'll have a pint of beer. <laughs> Yeah, great, thanks. Well, you see, I've got them back now. They're laughing now. There's genuine smiles on the faces. Because you were losing them. You were losing them, don't yeah. you? Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks. Our third and final ticket to a place in heaven... Oh, God. Uh, our third and final ticket to a place in heaven is repentance. I am rather suspicious about repentance. An apology might satisfy Almighty God, but it won't cut much ice with me, I'm afraid. It seems perverse to me that you can commit the most evil of crimes but enjoy eternal life if you say sorry. And it's all very well God's going around forgiving people. It's never his car stereo who gets stolen, is it? <laughs> Nonetheless, there are all sorts of people with megaphones exhorting us to repent our sins. They usually call us ye sinners because the term ye gives historical authenticity to their claims. And they tell us that if we don't do as they suggest, we'll roast in the eternal fires of damnation, which is all you need when you're trying to get the shopping done on a Saturday morning. Anyone who's going to brave Tesco's on Saturday doesn't need to be told they're going to hell. And what seems strange about all this evangelising is that it's all about repenting sins once we've done them rather than not doing the sins in the first place. There might be some purpose to their righteous indignation if they told people on their way into Tesco's not to try and pay for their shopping with an AA relay card and not to wait until their bill's been running up before deciding they need toilet paper. <laughs> I've talked about repentance as something you do once to be saved or born again. If you are a Roman Catholic, however, you're supposed to repent on a weekly basis, a system of continuous assessment which seems preferable to having to remember years of sins and then be tested on them all in one go. <laughs> but the trouble with being a Catholic is that even if you haven't done anything bad, you still have to confess, especially if the police are beating you up. <laughs> Chances are that from one week to the next, nothing much will happen in a person's life. So in Catholicism, there are extra sins, like having an impure thought, which is a bit of a catch-all offence. It's hard to wake up in the morning without having an impure thought. In fact, most men wake up in an advanced state of impure thought. And teenage years are just one big impure thought. Teenagers probably have more things to confess than anyone else. But it's hard to imagine them unburdening it to a parish priest. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been two days since my last confession. That's not long, my child. I know, but I've got so much to tell you. See, yesterday I skived off school because school is such crap, you know what I mean? Anyway, a load of us went shoplifting and then went back to Teresa's and I had eight Malibu and Pernos and Michael passed his joint around and I was sick as a dog, man. My child, and I... I could just have died right because when I was sick, I was in Teresa's mum's bed with Michael, so I had to lie to Teresa and tell her the sick was already there when we got in the bed. <laughs> it's all right because I don't fancy Michael anyway because he's such a wimp, you know. I just hate him so much sometimes I could kill him, you know. And he's Teresa's boyfriend anyway, you know what I mean? And Sean says, I've got to pack Michael in anyway if I'm going to go out with him. My child, I... Judy, yes, Father? Judy, Judy, I can't undo it like, you know. Sean, pack it in, man. I'm talking to the father. <laughs> My child, you lead a life absolutely steeped in mortal sin. I cannot find sufficient penance. You'll have to see the bishop. All right, but tell him he's got to use a condom. <laughs> so there we are, repentance. Our third and final route to a place in heaven. So how do our three routes compare in terms of cost, comfort and refreshment facilities? <laughs> well, while the show's been on air, Debbie's been trying to lead a life free from sin, Stephen's been taking part in a record-breaking attempt to make the world's biggest ever liver sausage sandwich to raise enough money to take a minibus load of underprivileged kids for a day out at BBC Television Centre, and I've been full of shame and repentance for owning an album by orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. <laughs> 
So, Debbie, how did you get on? Deb? Uh, Jeremy, she's taking a vow of silence. <laughs> but she was talking in that confession scene. Yeah, it's funny. It doesn't affect her when she's in character. It's like a stammer, you know. Oh, I see. Well, um, how about your underprivileged children? Oh, they're really looking forward to seeing Television Centre. Good. They're going to kick the crap out of Jimmy Savile. Good. <laughs> well, we've just got time for one last word from Debbie. No, I told you, she's not allowed to speak. Are you, Deb? No. Oh, Paul. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> right, here you are. You can read the credits now. Speak to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Jeremy Hardy, Stephen Frost and sister Debbie Isaac. The producer was David Tyner and the programme was a positive production for the BBC. Next week, how to make a nutritious and economical topu moussaka without being physically sick. <laughs>